0: Said the title of my talk today is Tedious and Brief. Life is Tedious and Brief. I don't know if you guys have been listening to the S Town podcasts, but it's a series that I've really got into lately. And um, this term really stuck out to me as I was listening to it Tedious and Brief. The protagonist of the show is a man by the name of John. And he makes this comment about the nature of the human condition, about the lives that we live as humans. It's a quote, or more accurately, it's actually a sundial motto. Apparently all sundials have mottos, and they're usually quite depressing and dark. But enduring comments about the passing of time as it ever escapes our grasp, the seconds that tick despite our best attempt to silence them. And this particular quote, "Tedious and brief," is John's favorite of all the Sundar mottoes. It's not the most jovial view of life, I think we can agree. But whether or not we try and mask it or hide it, the quote "tedious and brief" has in it an inescapable truth. This life is brief and for the most part, tedious a monotonous week-after-week cycle of Monday mornings, schedules, appointments, work, coffee dates, holidays, where nothing is ever done, nothing is finished, and where the time we so desperately long for is just around the bend. It's just out of our reach, tedious and brief. It's a feeling I, I actually always get when I watch nature documentaries, like I'm a lifelong fan of David Attenborough and all he's done. I would sit as a kid, a teenager, and now as a 20-something, and I would just be glued to the TV screen as he sort of explains and unpacks the workings of a mouse or sort of the week-by-week struggle of a mantis. It's like you're reading its journal. And I'm happy to view a snake for a TV screen, much less so in real life. But it's something I always think when I watch nature documentaries, because there's this feeling that comes over me, this sort of melancholy feeling when I look at the lives of animals, and I just can't help but think how meaningless it all is. I mean, these animals spend their entire life in a quest to get food so that they can be healthy, so they can have a mate, so they can reproduce, so they can have babies before they die, so that their babies can grow up to get food, to get a mate, to have babies before they die, and so on, and on and on it continues. A tedious cycle. Birth, food, sex, babies, animals. An entire generation summed up, sorry, not animals, death. Babies, death. An entire generation summed up in five words. There was an advert on TV a couple of years back, maybe about nine or ten years ago. I don't expect you to remember it, I don't, can't say I normally remember TV adverts, but this Advert had a profound effect on me. I remembered it because this advert spoke about the life of the mayfly. The mayfly only lives for 24 hours. 24 hours. They are born, they eat, they find a mate, they reproduce, they die. So that the next day, its babies can be born and continue in the same way. That means with each passing day, an entire new generation of mayflies are enjoying their time in this world. Being born, getting food, finding a mate, reproducing, and dying. And whilst I I sit in judgment of the lives of animals, of their trivial existence, I'm often forced to look back at myself and go, wait, how am I? How is all of humanity any different? Sure, we live for about 80 years rather than one day, but we are born and we are fed so we can grow healthy. So we can go to school, to go to uni, to get a job, so we can make money and find a partner and buy a house. So we can reproduce and raise kids and send them to school before we too die. Nothing is achieved. No one will be remembered. One generation follows another to the place where they all end up, the grave. Life is tedious and brief. The genealogies of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, share this sentiment. They describe the whole of existence in this cycle. Birth, life, babies, life, death. Birth, life, babies, life, death. One generation after another being born, giving birth and dying. The state of humanity. Albert Camus is a um, famous French absurdist philosopher. And he wrote an essay entitled The Myth of Sisyphus. In this essay, he appropriates and compares the Greek myth of Sisyphus as a metaphor for the human experience, the human existence. Our life, he says, is just like that of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a man who was cursed by the gods to spend eternity forever rolling a giant boulder up a hill only for the boulder to get to the top and roll down the other side. He would then have to walk down and laboriously roll it back up again. Such is life, says Camus. We labor through our weeks, longing for them to end, longing for it to be Friday, only to be greeted again by Monday. We long to be paid so we can pay our bills and buy the things that we want, but more bills come, and our heart desires something more. Nothing is completed, and we are left perpetually scrounging around for meaning and satisfaction in a world that seems completely devoid of it. Everything is just beyond our grasp. Both the rich and the poor long for more money, and we're afraid. I think we're afraid to stop and be still, for we fear that we'll miss out. We think we are free, yet our actions are driven by fear, anxiety, longing, striving for meaning, and desires that we didn't even choose in the first place. Such is life, tedious and brief, and we are prisoners to it. And here is where we meet the writer of Ecclesiastes. You'll notice that not once in that opening passage that Neil read out is God mentioned. Here is a man looking out on a world aside from God and finding nothing. Relentless striving, nothing is full, nothing is finished. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course, he writes. He's writing there about the wind, but he may as well be writing about our lives. Round and round they go. We look for this and for that, and when we have it, are our eyes full? Are our ears satisfied? Is our bank filled up? Our calendar finished? Is our bucket list all ticked? our house complete, our wardrobe finally done, no, we are never full, there is always more, so we keep striving, and say along with the writer from all those thousands of years ago, meaningless, meaningless, a chasing after the wind, it's a fun start to church, isn't it, but that is just the start This is not the conclusion on the matter. This is the introduction, the starting point, if you will. Because I do not believe that Christianity leaves one here. I believe Christianity meets someone here and takes them away from it. How? Well, that's the big question, right? But I believe the beginning, the beginning of the answers appears in chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. It's going to be on the screen behind us. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. You'll notice in that, there is a word that was not mentioned in the previous reading. God is mentioned. And with God comes another word, a beautiful word, a word we long for, satisfaction. Satisfaction. Yes, indeed, in chapter 3, verse 13, there is satisfaction, the elusive trophy of mankind. Because after all, what do we long for other than satisfaction? It's the quest of all of us. I mean, I think we turn to our jobs and think they'll give us meaning and satisfaction. We look in riches and wealth. We throw ourselves into pleasures and experiences, but they end, and the happiness and the excitement they give us soon fade, and we are left grasping at a memory. We turn to relationships, friends, family, girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, wives, but they too are looking for the same thing we are, and an empty jug cannot fill an empty glass. Our fixers don't fix anything, they just mask the truth, and the yearning of the heart continues. We follow the desires of our bodies, the lusts of our hearts and our minds. We reach out and grab what we want and say, I have denied myself nothing, yet still no satisfaction is found. We denied our pleasures nothing, but our heart is still denied the ever-elusive satisfaction it yearns for. And this is just it. A chasing after the wind. Chapters 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes, they recall this exact search. The quest for satisfaction and meaning in life. The writer looks to wisdom, to pleasure, and then to work, and is left grasping. And he says in chapter 2, verse 11, When I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. But then, chapter 3, verse 13, satisfaction. But where does it come from? You'll notice it is intrinsically tied to God. It comes from God. It is the gift of God. It comes from His hand. And I believe there is a beautiful, amazing freedom in this. One, because it's not dependent on us. And secondly, because it's not out of our grasp. It's just that we have been looking in the wrong place. We have been striving. We've been striving for something that cannot be earned or bought, or achieved, it's a gift. And we, we are looking to things to fill us, we worried ourselves, we worked ourselves to the bone, trying to create something, trying to achieve something, as if we could. I mean, humans have been around for thousands and thousands of years, and each generation tries and fails in the same futile way to find satisfaction that lasts. But The only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. You see, we try to fill ourselves with stuff, things, and experiences. We lessen ourselves. We lessen and liken ourselves to matter, simple matter. Yet I believe that humanity is more than just atoms, that we are more than just dust. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 23, For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. I mean, if we could be satisfied by money, we would be no greater than money. But we are greater by far, for we invented money. And now the cruel irony is we've submitted to our own creation, imprisoned by the allure of something that we ourselves constructed. We are more than matter. And therefore, it takes more than matter to fill us and satisfy us. It takes something other, something divine. I believe it takes God. And he is waiting for us. His satisfaction in his hand, ready to give. But we don't come to him, do we? I don't come to him. And me, like you, we just keep searching and searching and searching. And what we need to do, like the writer of Ecclesiastes, is to understand this simple truth and come before God. Acknowledging that all our efforts and striving and allocates and achievements mean nothing. To come with empty hands, no longer searching. To come before him, to be still and know him. And to know that satisfaction is found in him and only in him. And in his satisfaction, there is freedom. There is freedom, real freedom. Freedom from the chains of human judgment. Freedom from the bondage of one-upmanship. Freedom from envy, from the shackles of relentless, futile striving. Freedom from searching, freedom from self-deprecation, freedom from anxiety and fear, and freedom from the crushing feeling that we have not done enough. For We can never do enough, but God is more than enough. In God, we are free to enjoy the things of this world without trying to justify our existence by them. We can enjoy our friends without laying the burden of trying to find meaning in them, on them. We can enjoy our work without the fear that our failing would result in an empty existence. We can enjoy our marriages without seeing them as a fix, but enjoying them for what they are. There is real joy in this life, but it is found in the Lord. And if we look for joy, we won't find it. But if we look to God and we find Him and we are in Him, we are filled with satisfaction, joy, and peace. But there is a cost. There is a cost. You see, we as humans, and I know because I do it myself, I do it all the time, we grasp hold. We hold on to the things we love because we are so afraid to lose them. Yet if we will not let go, we cannot be filled we can't give our heart to God, half full of things, and expect him to fill it. I think so much of the time, even for Christians, we struggle to find joy and satisfaction. And It's not because God has failed or that God is not enough, but it's because our heart is already half filled with the things of this world, with the things of this life. God demands our whole heart. And when we give him everything, acknowledging that we never really had anything to begin with, he takes our empty hearts and he fills them. But you have to empty your heart first, trusting that he will fill it back up again. There is no place for money, for relationships, for things, for for anything. Our heart is and only is for the Lord. And when we give him everything, then he will fill it up. I don't want you to hear me saying that I think money is evil or or even relationships or people are evil. We should love our partners and our friends. What I am saying, though, is if you want to enjoy them more and if you want to love them more, then don't burden your existence on them. Don't put the task of being fooled up on your relationships, on your friends, on your job, or on your income. For they cannot do that. They cannot fill you up. Come to God. Love Him with your whole heart. Find yourself fully in Him. Be filled and go forth in joy, love, and peace, enjoying His amazing creation. However, there is there's one final problem. It's a problem that we all face. Some have faced more than others. The problem is death, the great equalizer of humanity. I mean, we could find meaning and joy and satisfaction, but death is common for everyone. The satisfied and the unsatisfied both go down to the grave, the rich and the poor, the foolish and the wise. All is left behind. Nothing can be taken with us. And the comedy of life continues. All our quests are undermined by this formidable foe, and he casts his shadow far and wide. We never know when it will come but we live ever fearing its arrival. I wonder how many of us live in this bondage, bondage to the fear of death. Because death is real, and it makes light work of our life and all we had built. Yet again, chapter 3, verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it forever. What God does endures forever. Forever goes past the grave. Forever overcomes death. God is not living in the fear of death. He is forever, never-ending, and this is the hope that we Christians have. This is the hope that we celebrate at Easter. For those who you know the story, God looked on his helpless children living in fear and sin. He offered his joy and satisfaction to them and then sent his son into the world that he created, yet he was hated, despised, mocked, and killed. Yet God turned mankind's greatest act of disobedience into his greatest act of salvation. And three days later, Jesus rose again and showed the entire world that death has no hold on him, that death. Once and for all has been defeated, and in him we can cry, O death, where is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The grave has once and for all been overcome, and though we die, we will live on. You see, we are not on a treadmill, slowly running down the days, hours, and seconds until the time that until the time when we no longer hear the ticking. Those whose life is hid in Jesus have been plucked from the clutches of death and no longer do we need to fear it. Christians are free to live in peace and to enjoy their creator every day. In Jesus, the great cycle of humanity, birth, life, babies, death, birth, life, babies, death, is finally and decisively concluded. Birth, life, Babies, death, life, forever and ever. This life we live on earth may be brief, but how we live in these few years dictates forever and ever. This life we live on earth might be tedious, but God redeems the tedious moments, enabling each and every moment we live to be one of profound meaning, joy, and satisfaction. Tedious and brief might be your view of life as you came in here today, but it doesn't have to stay that way, and it doesn't have to stop there. I urge you, if you have not already, to look into Christianity, to explore its claims through the Alpha Course, as Matt was talking about, to grapple with its glorious yet humble calling. And if you sit here tonight, a believer of, of many or a few years, I ask you this, What occupies your heart? Are you still scrounging for meaning and satisfaction in this world? Is your heart cluttered? Is your life ruled by the fear of death and the anxiety of life? If so, together, let's clear our hearts. Let's raise them empty to the Lord and offer him everything we have. Letting the peace that transcends understanding rule in our hearts forever and ever and ever. Amen. I'm going to bring the the band up. And just as they come up, I'm just going to pray for us. So, if you'd like to bow your heads with me. Father, we, we thank you that you did not abandon us. You made us, and you love us, and you care for us, and you are here with us even right now as we sit in this building. Lord, we thank you that in you there is more to this life. Lord, this life may be brief, but you have promised us life beyond the grave. You have promised us satisfaction and we can find the fulfillment of satisfaction, joy and peace in you. Lord, I pray for us that do not know you yet. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts tonight. Maybe it's just a conversation or a question they have. But Lord, I pray that they would would find the strength to ask it. And Lord, for those that have been following you, your children who sit among us tonight. Lord, I pray you would reveal to them what lies in their hearts. I pray that you would reveal to them what they are putting in front of you and that they would empty themselves and come before you knowing that you are their number one. You are their God and their creator. And they can be filled by you. Amen.